Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. The premise of this series has been pretty simple if you've been with us. Uh, I have read a lot of books and I've been in a lot of church contexts where they preach sermons that help people move from doubt into faith. I've been into far less though that help people who feel like they're sliding out of faith and into doubt into skepticism. In fact, that's kind of how my, my mind is wired. And so that's what I wanted to create this series for. If you feel like you're a person of faith, but you got a lot of questions, you're kind of on the slippery slope sliding out of it, the hope of this series is to help you stand up on that slippery slope, find some solid ground, wrestle with your faith in appropriate ways, and stay in love with Jesus. And if you're maybe not a skeptic, I guarantee you got somebody like that in your life, maybe an adult child, a friend, a spouse, whatever. And so hopefully this series has helped you have appropriate conversations. Now, one thing I've said over and over through this series is that I'm basically preaching to myself in this. If you guys remember, uh, you know, the three faith uh, stages from, from week one, construction, deconstruction, and then reconstruction, I basically, do we got that diagram? Yeah, okay, so I basically live in the spin cycle between phase two and three. This is just how my brain works, right? And uh, I know some of you guys are the, the same way. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about Christianity. Spend a lot of time thinking about what's hard about it, what's really helpful about it. And today in this sermon, I want to do something interesting. I want to show you the process by which I mentally have come to believe Christianity is the most compelling. I'm going to let you into my brain. It's a little scary place, right? But I, I, think, I think that some of you guys might, might really appreciate this. So first, in order to do this, we need to start with some sociology. Okay, sociology. Christian Smith. I've referenced this uh, guy before. He's a Notre Dame sociologist. Pretty sure he's a Catholic. And he wrote an important book recently called Moral Believing Animals. In this book, he makes the case that what makes human beings distinct from any other living organism is that by nature, we need stories. We create stories in order to find the answers to all of our big questions in life, like purpose, meaning, origins, all, all of that, we are, we, we are story-needing creatures who live into stories. Basically, this is what he writes. Um, he says, uh, we not only continue to be animals who make stories, but also animals who are made by our stories. We tell and retell narratives that themselves come to fundamentally constitute and direct our lives. Now, you follow me? Okay, this is kind of sociology speak, so uh, let me bring it down another level for you. Uh, later in his book, he actually lays out seven big macro stories that are really powerful in the modern West. Okay, they're not necessarily all that popular in the East or the global South. They haven't been necessarily all that popular historically in other human cultures. But in our culture, these are the seven most powerful stories, he says, that we just tend to gravitate towards and live into. I bet you'll, you'll, uh, you'll probably recognize some of them. Um, first, the American experiment narrative. This is the idea that the USA is an experiment in freedom and democracy, and it should be spread and defended with our lives. Or the militant Islamic resurgence narrative. This one has been really popular in the U.S. ever since 9-11. It's the idea that Islam has awoken 
and, uh, and jihad has been begun on the West. Uh, the capitalist prosperity narratives, the idea that capitalism has produced more wealth and well-being than any other economic model ever could. So we got to embrace it. we got to fight off all the leftists. we got to keep this as part of who we are here. Or on the flip side, the progressive socialism narrative, the idea that we have to abolish private property, socialize production, distribute goods according to need, not buying power, and we'll have to defeat the right-wing billionaires in order to do it. Uh, there's the scientific enlightenment narrative. It's the idea that science is, is king, period. And like religion and superstition just get in the way. Or the expressive romantic narrative. This one's really popular today. We should be free thinkers. We should set, uh, shed the domesticating restraints of society, get in touch with our emotions, act on our desires. That's how you find the true you. Or of course, lastly, there you see the Christian narrative, which no explanation needed here. We, we all know that one, but you kind of get my point. As I go through all seven of these, I guarantee you throughout your life, these seven stories have shaped you. You've been taught to embrace some of them. You've been taught to resist others. And this is Smith's point. Smith goes on to make two key points here. He he actually says, first, you need to know that nobody's a purist. When it comes to the stories you embrace, it's usually kind of a hodgepodge for most people. You may have a dominant story, but there are other stories that kind of get thrown into the blender and determine who you are. This is actually the problem for many of us because while we say we believe in the Christian story, sometimes we allow other stories to co-opt that and distort it. Now here's the second thing Smith says. This is even more important. This is the whole point of his book. Stories matter. Your stories matter. The stories we believe matter so much because the stories we believe make or break our lives. They give us our answers to the big questions and realities of life. So you better watch what stories you believe. Tyler, what do you mean the big questions and big realities of life? Well, I've made a list for you. Uh, Human origins, purpose, destiny, uh, morality, human worth, human nature, sin, salvation, authority, power, wealth, work, family, gender, sex, love, community, suffering, meaning, death, and life after death. These are all issues that we wrestle through life, right? And the stories that we embrace ultimately give us answers to resolve them. Now, okay. Tyler, what does all this have to do with doubt and deconstruction? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Here's what I've noticed about people when they deconstruct from Christianity. Basically, they deconstruct out of Christianity one small step at a time. Oh, this thing about the Bible is confusing to me. Oh, I don't really like this thing that Jesus asks us to do oh, this you know, Christian leader uh, disappointed me. And one step after the other, they kind of back their way out until they're out. Now, what I've noticed is that while people are deconstructing, while people are putting Christianity under the microscope and scrutinizing it and backing their way out, what they rarely pay any attention to is what they're backing into. And oftentimes, if you're not careful, you'll actually back your way out of Christianity because there's some issues you gotta wrestle with into something that's less intellectually and emotionally compelling. This is a big point here, okay? And it's kind of long, but stay with me. Most people deconstruct because they find a specific kind of Christianity damaging or a specific aspect of Christianity difficult, right? But not because they find something else more intellectually convincing or emotionally invigorating. Are you following me? We back out of Christianity, but we pay very little attention of what we're going into. 
Now, this point was huge for me years ago because I was kind of backing out of Christianity. I was coming to all these questions about the faith of my childhood and said, uh, and so I said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take all the world religions. I'm gonna take atheism too. And I'm just gonna run them through life's big questions, life's big realities. And I'm gonna see which one seems the most credible to me. Like, who am I? Where'd the world come from? What is God? What's moral? What happens after we die? Let's just run it through. Let's just run the questions through all the major religions and, and we'll see We'll see what turns up. Now, I probably did this about, I think, 12, 13 years ago. And I, I found four things to be true. Okay, four things. And I'm not the world's greatest thinker. This is the four conclusions I came, through, came to. Uh, one, uh, I found that every religion is very different. Despite the fact what people say today, all religions are basically the same. That is not true. It's also deeply offensive to devout Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, you know, Christians. All religions are not basically the same. Two, I found that every religion has true and beautiful things about it that should be admired. There's common ground. There is. Three, I found that every religion has difficult parts, including Christianity. Questions like the problem of evil and suffering in the world, the hiddenness of God, the inspiration and authority of Scripture. There's just some squirrely stuff in Scripture that's hard to wrap your mind around. Like, how did that get there, right? Even Christianity has things to wrestle down. But four, I found that in my opinion, by far, Christianity is the most intellectually and emotionally compelling of the options we have out there. Now, uh, that being said, over the last few years, there's a new story. A, a new story that has emerged with great power in the modern West. And it's one I did not run through my process, you know, 12 years ago. And I'm not really sure what to call it today. So for the purpose of our sermon, I'm gonna call it the story of popular culture. It's like this strange mix of American freedom, but also science is king, but also like the expressive romantic, you do you, your authentic self is within you, but also self-help spirituality all blended together. It's really pretty interesting. And it's incredibly pervasive. And what I'd like to do with our time today is I'd actually like to show you how I do this. I would actually like to run the story of popular culture through all of those major realities and questions that I think all of us have right next to Christianity. Put these two stories next to each other and I would like you to I'd just challenge you to consider which story is better, which story is more compelling. And my hope is that you'll find that Jesus' story is. So I'm like, I'm biased. Okay, you'll probably hear my bias come out, but I really can't help it. So let's start. There's 20 data points that we're going to run through, which means I'm gonna move fast. If you're a note taker, this is probably one of the days where it's just like, good luck. Maybe you just soak today and then go back later. Good luck. But let's run through quickly. I'm gonna start with the story of popular culture. And uh, you know, this story should probably resonate with you a little bit because you hear it every single day. Okay, so the story of popular culture. First, human origins. Where did we come from? Well, the story of popular culture says there is no intentional design. We came from an explosion. Um, approximately 14 billion years ago, there's a random chance explosion, a big bang that resulted in the complexity and beauty of the universe that we see around us and possibly infinite amount of other universes out there. Who banged the bang? No one. Where did the supercharged ball of matter or light come from? Not really sure. We just know that science is king. You are not a snowflake. You are not special. These things you think you feel like beauty and love, it's just math. And autonomy is a myth. 
Uh, next purpose. According to the story of pop culture, what's our, our purpose? Well, technically there is none. Again, earth is here, humans are here because we got lucky in the grand scheme of the explosion and evolution. And at the end of the day, we're all just decaying matter on decaying matter. Next, destiny. What is our destiny? Well, your destiny is that one day you'll die. And about 20 years after you die, uh, most people will have forgotten you. Um, About 100 years after you die, no one will remember you and your body will be pretty well decomposed at that point. Oh, and we better be careful that the climate doesn't go in the wrong direction or the wrong country gets their hands on nuclear uh, weapons or, you know, a meteor accidentally hurtles the wrong way and slams into earth. Because if that happens, then the earth explodes to a bajillion pieces, which one day it will anyways. It's going to explode into a bajillion pieces and no one's going to remember anything anyone ever did anyways. Uh, next, morality. According to the story of popular culture, what's right? Well, what's right is whatever you want to be right. What's right is to live free. What's right is to follow your heart, find your truth, just as long as you're not hurting anyone. There's no absolute standard. There's no absolute authority. There's no transcendent God that asks you to bend your life and make sacrifices for him. Uh, rather, if, if there is a God out there, he's more of a God of self-esteem. We call it love, but really it's a self-esteem God. I love you just the way you are. You don't have to hate yourself. You don't have to change yourself. Just do you. Uh, Next, human worth. According to the story of popular culture, and this is where it actually gets really kind of incoherent, right? Because according to the story of our popular culture, it says that human beings are worth everything. You are a snowflake. You are a precious creation. You deserve freedom and equality. You're decaying matter on decaying matter, but we should love one another. That's the inner logic. Uh, Next, human nature. According to the story of our popular culture, we're born innocent, untainted by the world, unshamed, unmanipulated. We all have this sort of inner child inside of us and, uh, and the goal of life is to unleash that on the world. But the world corrupts us, which is where sin is introduced. According to the story of popular culture, sin is all of those external forces that impose themselves on our life and taint our authentic self. Like religion, religion is is sin because it traumatizes us by imposing its archaic morals on us. Or government, it's sin because it traumatizes us through its power plays, propaganda, and uh, unjust legislation. Educational institutions traumatize us by teaching us bad things. Parents traumatize us by trying to force fit their mold. Basically, any expectation that's put upon you from the outside, that's sin because it sullies the inner you. Gender, ethnicity, social class, nationality, career, religion. Anything that doesn't come from your inner self is oppression. Which leads us to salvation. How do you save yourself from all this sin? Well, it's easy. Rediscover the inner you. Break free from all the external authorities. Get into your heart. Build your identity. Brand it on social media. You do you. Find your truth. Follow your heart. That's the only way you'll truly be happy. That brings us to authority. According to the story of popular culture, you are your own authority. Power and wealth, get more of it. This is a key to significance. Power and wealth is a key to safety. It's a key to happiness in this life. Work, this is one of the critical mechanisms through which you prove to the world that you're worthy. 
and also through which you gain power and wealth, which again are important. So work more, work harder, work your way up the org chart, give your life to work. Or if you can't, if you get to like midlife and you realize you're kind of average, uh, we have all sorts of stuff in our culture today to numb your mediocrity and distract you from it. Bourbon tours, edibles, CBD infused cookie dough. I kid you not, that's real. Squid games, Netflix, stand-up comedy, social media, pumpkin spice. You don't live to work, you work to live. So go do some soul cycle, like go to an orchard, hang out with your friends, swipe right. Family. According to the story of our popular culture, it's up to you. Get married or don't, have one spouse, have four. Divorce is not a big deal. It's the decision for two enlightened people to know longer be together because they're not compatible anymore. Uh, in our popular culture story, the point of marriage is individual happiness. So if you're no longer happy, the right thing to do is leave. Don't worry about your kids. They'll be fine. One of the most important things you have to teach them is that, well, you gotta do what's best for yourself. Be true to yourself. Gender. It's a social construct from the patriarchy to oppress women and a genderless society would be better for everyone. Sex, it's an appetite, not a big deal. Has nothing to do with your soul or anything like that. Uh, and with birth control and abortion, there's really no responsibility attached to it anymore outside the moment. So feed the appetite, have 100 partners, swing your marriage, watch a screen, whatever. Consent is all that really matters. Love, love is love, you know, so just be nice to each other. Community. Eh, a better word for that in our culture today would be tribe, right? Find your tribe, find the people who think like you, destroy the people who don't. Suffering, avoid it at all costs. You got 80 years, my friends. Suffering is an interruption. Do everything you can to buffer it out of your life. It has no redeemable value. Meaning, technically there is none. So make your own while you can. Death. It must be prolonged as long as possible because it is the cosmic off switch and life after death, well, again, there is none. No matter how much we wish there is, your loved ones are gone forever. <clears throat> all right. You doing all right out there? Okay. This, this, this is my attempt to put words to a story uh, that we hear every single day. And for the record, like I said earlier, of all the world religions, there are some very true and beautiful things about this story. It's not all bad. But there's also lots of incoherence. There's lots of really, really bad life advice. Yet we walk around every day just acting like this is the way things are. You know, this is the only way to live. Ignoring the fact that thousands of years of humans who've come before us do not agree with that. And billions of human beings on the face of the planet today look at our way of life and they say, you have some major problems there. But we're inundated with this. We're being evangelized by this competing gospel relentlessly in classes at school, in shows on TV, in articles online, in influencer posts on Instagram, in celebrity commencement speeches, in throwaway comments from your coworker, you can't pump your gas or use the bathroom at B-dubs without a screen discipling you. You can't watch sports without having to consider justice, racism, gender inequality, and sexuality. Literally, my wife came home from Old Navy the other day where she bought a couple of clearance t-shirts, and on the bag, uh, it said, uh, 
quote, body quality on it. Which from what I understand, this is a good thing, like I'm for body quality. My point is that you can't even go to the department store and buy clothes without being discipled. In their view of what makes a human valuable. It is the relentless background noise of our life in popular culture. And it is so easy to just gradually assume it's reality. That this is how you were made to live. This is the human story. But I would argue today that this is just one story. It's the story of popular culture. And I would ask you to consider today, is it the best story? Is there a better story, a truer story, a story more tested by time and more in touch with reality? I believe there is. And I would call that story the way of Jesus. Back to our data points. Let's run Jesus through this. First, human origins. In the beginning, an unfathomably creative, powerful, and personal God made everything, including you, on purpose. Speaking of purpose, when God created human beings, he created us in his image. Now, in the ancient world, when Genesis was, was written, an image of a God was actually like an idol, a graven image built out of precious metal or wood that would actually serve as a physical representation for the power and presence of an unseen God. And Israel was told, you shall have no idols. You shall have no graven images. Do you know why? Because they were supposed to be the image. We as human beings are supposed to be the physical representation of the power and presence of God in the world. Our singular purpose is to glorify God. We serve as an angled mirror where we shine the glories of God out into the world and we summon the praises of the world back up to God. This is our purpose. What a wonderful purpose. Destiny. Again, our popular culture tells us that you better live it up while you still can because tomorrow we all die. But God says, nah, you are going to live forever. Look around this room. There are no mortals in here. So don't make a retirement plan. Don't make a career plan. Don't make a weekend plan. Make a 10,000 year plan. Because 10,000 years, 10 billion years, you will still be alive. And what you do today matters. Morality. There is such a thing as universal right and wrong, as we all sense anyways. And, uh, and the one who sets those standards is a good and perfect God who loves us and promises us justice one day. Human worth. Well, again, God created human beings in his image, right? So as image bearers, we have been stamped with the divine. We are eternally and undeniably valuable. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows how many hairs are literally on your head. One of the deepest longings of every human heart is, does anyone really want me out there? Well, if this is true, if we are created in the image of God by God, then the good news is that, that God wants you. He didn't need you. He didn't, created you. he didn't create you because he needed to. He created you because he wanted you. It's the only reason, because he wanted to. And it's this doctrine of the imago Dei, the image of God, that's actually the foundation for modern human rights. Underneath the inalienable rights of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, is imago Dei. Underneath the universal declaration of human rights set by the UN in the 20th century is the imago Dei. Underneath Dr. King's civil rights movement and his nonviolent civil disobedience is the imago Dei. 
Humans are valuable. Which brings us to human nature, though. While it's true we are valuable, we are far more loved than we ever could hope, we are also far more wicked than we ever could imagine. Ain't that the truth? Be honest. This is what I love about the Christian story. It offers us a soberingly realistic assessment of human beings. And history agrees. Human beings are, are capable of great good and human beings are capable of great, great evil. And this is what we call sin. And all of us are guilty of it. Which is why we all need salvation. And the good news about Christian story is that that's free. This is what sets us apart from, from other world religions. Every other world religion constructs salvation as like a trophy or a standing to be earned. You know how you get a trophy? You get a trophy based on your character or your hard work. But you know what Christianity says? It says it's not a trophy, it's a gift. And a gift is given based on the hard work and character of the giver, how much the giver loves you, and that's how much Jesus loves us. So authority, authority, well... Jesus is our savior. He's given us the greatest gift. He is our Lord. He's risen from the dead. So he's the authority. Why wouldn't you trust someone who would do that for you? Why wouldn't you trust a God like that? Uh, So because of that, we give our allegiance to Jesus. We come under his authority. We walk in his way. Power and wealth. Well, okay, if we're walking in the way of Jesus, then the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of many. And we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven by giving to the least and being uncomfortably generous. Work. We were created for it. In Genesis 1, and again, notice, we keep going back to Genesis 1 and 2. We go back to Genesis 1 and 2 for what? Human origins, purpose, destiny, morality, worth, uh, you know, sin, salvation, authority, work, family. We go back to it over and over. It's foundational for our faith, right? And in Genesis 1 through 2, the importance of work is established through the cultural mandate God gives to human beings. He tells them to go out, subdue the earth, rule over the earth. This is God's vision of us building society together as a community and stretching the Garden of Eden out to the four corners of the world. Family. Well, in significant ways, family is the backbone of civilization. First, marriage is not a contract to opt out of according to the way of Jesus, but rather a covenant where you vow before God and community to love your spouse self-sacrificially for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, as long as you both shall live. Which is why divorces is always tragic. I'm not trying to shame anyone here. Abandonment, abuse, and adultery are three ways that the Bible permits divorce. But even in those cases where it is permissible, the breaking of the covenant of marriage still hurts. I think that I am the first adult generation that is largely the byproduct of divorce. And you can ask any psychologist what happens to a kid when mom and dad break up, you'll see it's hard. So on the flip side, when husbands and wives submit to one another as God's word calls us to, When fathers and mothers are present and engaged in the lives of their kids, we see the undeniable positive impact on society. Jesus himself actually repeats this creation intention of Genesis 1 through 2. And it sounds so shameful and archaic and outrageous in our culture today. And everybody's like, well, Jesus doesn't talk about it, but he does. And it's foundational. Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus says, haven't you read the scriptures? They record from the beginning, God made them male and female. Uh, And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, 
Let no one split apart what God has joined together. Gender. Men and women are equal, period, full stop. We're not the same in terms of our biology, for the record. I don't think I need to go into that. Um, Our gender is a gift from God, and uh, it comes with some roles and responsibilities that have to do with childbearing and family. But let me say it again, men and women are equal, period. Sex. Okay, Uh, fact is uh, the way of Jesus is highly restrictive here with its boundaries. And because of that, our culture shames us. But uh, the reason why God puts boundaries that he does on sex is because he loves us. Recognizes how powerful it is because he created it. He created us. For the record, every civilized society, including our own, every world religion puts boundaries on sex. In fact, most world religions are very similar to Christianity in this. Everybody has boundaries, just a matter of where you put them and by what authority do you put them where you put them, if you know what I'm saying. For example, consent, important boundary in our culture. Age, also a boundary that our culture still has. But outside of that, our culture is pretty permissive. God isn't. Why? Why? Because he created sex and he knows how powerful it can be. I've heard it said like this before, uh, sex is like a fire. In the right context, it can warm the home. Outside of the right context, it can burn the home down. And that's true. The only safe place for this fire is in the confines of a lifelong covenant. Now, I regularly hear people say, what's the big deal with you Christians? Light up, love is love, it's an appetite. Who's ever been hurt by a little bit of sex? To which I always wanna say back, who hasn't been hurt? Who hasn't been hurt by sex? Betrayal, divorce, infidelity, abuse, addiction, porn, trust issues, body image, insecurity in our meat market exhibitionist culture that's just exacerbated by Instagram. Our culture's attempt over the last half century to cheapen sex is at best naive and at worst what's led to the horrible spikes in divorce and abortion and abuse cover-ups and the Me Too movement. This is a good gift from God, y'all, but one that we treat flippantly at our own peril. This is why we need to rediscover the beauty, for the record, and the power of singleness and celibacy in the Christian story. It's not something that we talk about a whole lot. Our churches today tell us that if you don't get married, then you know, somehow you're a lesser citizen. When are you gonna get married, honey? Can we make this, which church becomes a matchmaking website, you know? Or our popular culture tells us that if you're not allowed to sleep with whoever you want to, then you'll never totally be happy. But that's not what Jesus or Paul modeled and taught. We need to rediscover the beauty of this alternative way found in the Christian story. Love. Love is God, love is life. Love is clearly defined by Jesus and shaped like a cross. It's not obscure or mushy. Love is prioritizing another above yourself no matter the cost to yourself. Community, the church. The church is our core community. It's a place with a vision of grace, forgiveness, diversity, growth, encouragement, commitment, care, generosity, truth-telling, compassion, but it's also a community that in reality falls short of this vision time and time again. But our union in the spirit will not keep us apart. Suffering. There's no perfect explanation for this, y'all. I mean, this is a hard one. 
Why does suffering exist? I, I can't really tell you for sure. But what I can tell you is that the Christian story says God suffers with you. He knows exactly what it's like to experience whatever suffering you're going through because look at Jesus. And if you walk with Jesus through the fires of trial and tribulation, Jesus promises you'll come out the other side mature and wiser for it. Meaning, it's not found in comfort or luxury, but in self-denial and self-sacrifice. Meaning costs. Carry your cross. That's the way of Jesus. Death, it's but a door to Jesus. A door to life after death. And life after death, well, ultimately, that's the day we all await, right? When Jesus returns, everything is resurrected. It's all made new. There's no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things are gone forever and we can live with God into eternity. Still doing okay. All right, that was a lot. I'm done with that part. That was a lot. Uh, Two stories. And I hope you notice the second story is vastly different than the first story. It's a much older story. Uh, A time-tested story, perhaps you could call it. It's one that's been passed down by 2,000 years in the global church which has survived diverse times and hostile environments, not just survived, but thrived through the centuries. Did you know at the beginning of the Christian movement in its first couple years of existence, it had a different title than Christianity? It was called The Way. The Way, Acts chapter nine, verse two. It says uh, the apostle Paul, when he was Saul, I'm still persecuting Christians, said uh, he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. This is the first couple years of the Christian church existence. What were they called? They're called the way. And you know why? Because they preached that Jesus had risen and he had a very distinct way to live life. And honestly, that's what Jesus taught. He would walk onto the scene and he would say, oh, okay, you thought this thing about money? Let me tell you this little parable here that totally flips that. On its head. Oh, okay. You thought this thing about relationships? Let me tell you this little story here that totally turns the way that you thought upside down. Oh, you thought this way about divorce and marriage or about justice or about whatever, any topic. Oh, let me tell you this little story that summons you up to a completely different reality and turns the world upside down. This is Jesus. And he was brilliant. And I believe his words were true and worth following. The problem is, though, that while the way of Jesus, I believe, wins the battle of intellectual and emotional truth, the story of popular culture is winning the narrative battle. It controls the major institutions. It propagates its story through media, entertainment, politics, the academy, institutions of higher education. And it's inescapable. But it's not working. Can I just appeal to you for a second from my own personal experience? This is anecdotal. It's not working. Do you know what I do for a living? Okay. Uh, every week, I don't know what you, if you do this, but every week, almost every, every day, I at least have one, sometimes multiple conversations with real people in our community. And when I have these conversations, they are almost always 
soul-bearing conversations. Like, let me open up my heart and tell you the deepest, realest, most personal, raw thing about me, my darkest struggles, my greatest griefs, my addictions, my idols that I'm trying to bash, the trauma in my past, the sins that I'm struggling with. Let me just tell you, Pastor. That's, that's right, and I, and, I, and I love it. Actually, sometimes I don't love it. Sometimes it's really hard. Uh, but is that, is, do you, does anybody else do that for a living? Maybe a few, maybe a couple counselors in here, maybe a couple other pastors. Probably not all of you. Now, here's what I'll tell you I find listening to people's stories almost every day. What I hear and see when people are honest is pain, a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of anger, a lot of rage, a lot of insecurity, confusion, fear, and desperation. I see our nation facing a loneliness epidemic. I see our nation facing a mental health catastrophe. I see our nation facing an opioid crisis. Seems like everyone's just tired and distracted and bored and outraged and politicized and medicated and disillusioned and greedy and depressed and doing everything they can to avoid getting old and dying. We keep feeling inside of us that there has to be something better than this. It's probably why you're here, right? We believe that. But rather than investigating another story, we just keep going back to this popular one, expecting that if we go further into it, then somehow it's just going to work. What if it's not going to work? What if it's never going to work? What if the mess we have today is exactly what we get from running this playbook for decades now? What if the reason why it seems like everyone and everything is just so broken is because we are reaping the fruits of a broken gospel our story or our society has been telling us? I believe that's the case. But look, this is just one story. It's just one. There's a better story, a truer story, a story more in tune with reality and human flourishing. And I would humbly suggest to you today that that story is the way of Jesus. And my invitation is simple. As we move into a time of communion where we remember Jesus's body, and blood broken for us, I would just ask you to consider trying this story, keeping this story, going deeper into it rather than any other story. I would encourage you to consider to continue walking in the way of Jesus. And I believe you'll find life. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, the thief's purpose is to still kill and destroy. My purpose is to give rich and satisfying In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. He'll give you everything you need. Don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. In Romans chapter 12, Paul gives us these marching orders. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I plead you, give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be living, holy sacrifices, the kinds he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Amen.